This is a great day, isn't it? I'm reading from Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression which with the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. what a great morning. And in addition, a great thing about this morning is my mom is here this morning. We're thankful to have you here, mom, and the crossings, ladies. But maybe the downside is I think you guys did this passage in Sunday school last week. So this is going to be a recap. Second second time you've heard of fakes in the span of seven days, teach on Exodus. So names carry a ton of weight in the Bible. In fact, names carry a lot of weight today as well. You don't know this as acutely as when you're thinking about what to name your child. And if you tell people the name, which we decided not to do, you're going to get the strong connotations that names hold with different people. You know, well, I knew somebody in third grade that was named that, and they were terrible. Great. We've already got things monogrammed, so I guess we'll just live with that. So the thing about the Bible, though, is people, more so than now, are 
living up to their name, right? So you have these fantastic Bible names, but, but then it's like you got to live up to that. So you have Elijah, whose name is My God is God, strong name. You have uh, people like we talked about in the book of Daniel in our, in our small group. You have these three men that go to Babylon. They have these strong names from their Hebrew parents in the hopes that they're going to be living up to those names. And what's the first thing that they do in Babylon? They give them different names. You're, you're not going to be that person anymore. You're going to be this person. You're not going to serve those gods anymore. You're going to serve these gods. You're not going to live up to that anymore. You're going to live up to this that we set for you. Because naming is a way of revealing somebody and saying something about them and setting out a legacy for their life. The opening line of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader always sticks with me because it says, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> so when Laura and I were dating, her dad was sick. He had cancer and was going to pass away, and we were taking care of him. And there was a day where I was picking him up from the hospital and bringing him back to their house because Laura was working and family members were working. So it's just the two of us in the car, and I really treasure those times we, we got to spend in the car together coming from those appointments. We get back to the house, and right as he's about to get out the passenger door, he kind of slaps me on the knee and says, you know what? Thanks for all you do for us, Troy. <laughs> I thought, this is mildly excusable for him. He's sick. But immediately after that, I was texting Laura, who is Troy? Who, this is the remnant of some boyfriend past. I got to know who this guy is. Of course, there's great illustrations in history of people who live up to their names. You know, you think about Abraham and Abraham Lincoln, for example. You think of Karl Marx and the Marx Brothers, for example. You think of maybe the best example of this, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr., who we just celebrated on Monday. But in this text, we're going to find out some very important names, primarily the name of God. In fact, in the passage that Nancy just read for us, the name that God will be known as forever and ever is revealed for the first time in this passage. And so as we move through the first part of Exodus chapter 3, I want you to see in three important questions that are asked what this name means for our God and what it means for us. So Moses has left Egypt. He had a mishap with an Egyptian, accidentally kills him. Feels like he really can't be a part of the upper echelon of Egyptian society anymore. So he flees to the wilderness, and he actually is following God's providential path for his life this entire way. He goes to a well. He meets these women who are there. He helps them. It turns out their father, whose name is Ruel, or in our passage, Jethro, his name means, Ruel means companion of God. So while Moses is running away from the world that he's known, he runs into a companion of God who's a priest of the Lord Most High. And he moves into this little town of shepherds near Mount Horeb, and he gets started on a new life. And he's a shepherd now, so he's taking care of sheep. And the text says that he and his sheep have gone far out into the wilderness next to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb means wasteland, wasteland. So in the, in the wasteland, if you're reading along, you notice that right before this, in the end of chapter 2, 
it tells us that back in Egypt, the people are crying out under the oppression of Pharaoh and his taskmasters. And the cries go up to God in heaven, and he hears them, and he knows. I think if you read from chapter 2 to chapter 3 seamlessly, he knows what he's going to do about it. He knows exactly who he's going to send. Because if this were a movie, the, the, the scene immediately breaks where Moses is now tending his sheep, and God is about to do something about the oppression of his people. So Moses is tending the sheep, and he sees something odd, a bush that is on fire, but it's not being burned. Now, Moses, the text is really kind of interesting about this. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed, and Moses said to himself, well, I'm going to have to take a closer look. Why is this bush not being burning? Moses doesn't know at this point that this is God in the bush. He just sees something extraordinary in his ordinary life, and he's curious enough to go see what it is, and it's only once he goes over there that God reveals that he's going to speak to him. And when the Lord sees that Moses turns aside, he calls out of the bush and he says, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. He says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off, for you are standing on holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he's afraid to look at God. So what does Moses do here? Well, God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to deliver your people. And Moses takes the unexpected route of saying, No. Not just no, five times Moses says no. Who am I to go talk to the people? I mean, what and what would they say if I did? And I'm not very good at speaking. And then finally at the end of this, God says, All right, I've solved all your issues. You're going to Egypt. And Moses is like, Can you just find somebody else to go? What's interesting about this is Moses. He reveals so much about his character by doing this. Who thinks it's a good idea to do this? Who thinks that God speaks to you out of a burning bush and you're like, I've got a few excuses that I'd like to give. I mean, maybe Moses remembers the encounter that God had with Abraham over Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham says, oh God, don't, don't do that. What if I just found you a few dozen good people? God says, well, I'd consider that. What if it was less than that? What if it was just 10 people? What if it was just five people? Abraham has done this same thing. Moses reveals in this dialogue that he is both strong enough to dialogue with God, to truly wrestle with God, but not arrogant enough to think that he can do this job. This is a killer combo. He is willing to wrestle with God, which is important because Israel, the nation of Israel, that name means people who wrestle with God. What a perfect leader to a point. Somebody who's like, I, I, I know what you're saying, but have you thought about this to God? Which really feels like something you shouldn't do. But the more you read the Old Testament, especially the more you realize God's called people do this all the time. But on the flip side, we, we kind of want a leader that wouldn't bat an eye at this and would say, Egypt, no problem. Pharaoh, got it. 
And what plays out in Moses' life is he goes back and forth with God to reveal that his character is both strong enough, firm enough, and flexible enough to lead the people of Israel. In fact, the word that's going to be used for Moses later on is meekness. In Numbers it says, Moses is the meekest person who ever lived. What does the word meekness mean? We, we kind of translate the word meekness as weakness, like it's a put down. Meekness means power under control. The power to wrestle and struggle with what God is calling you to do and the confidence to trust. The lack of arrogance, not to think that you've got everything you need without God to do the job. So they go back and forth with each other five times. And the fourth one is really interesting. So in verse 10, after God says that there's going to be signs and wonders and miracles, and he shows Moses the miracles he's going to do, even after all of that, he says, well, I really can't go because I'm not a good speaker, not a good public speaker. Didn't do well in speech class. I have a stutter. I don't like getting up in front of big groups. And God, in the, in, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, this is when God gets really going at Moses. He, the burning bush just explodes, and he says, who made man's mouth? Who created all of this? But what's interesting about this verse is it's, it's not just that God created mouths generally. right? We read this as God made all mouths. He's the creator. If you have a problem, he can fix it. He, he's over all of this. But when God says, who made man's mouth, I think he means who made your mouth. Who made your mouth? Oh, God, I, I, I can't. I have a stutter. Did, did, did that come stock? Because I'm the guy who made you. I'm the one who knit you together. I'm the one who gave you that in the first place. You think I don't know how to utilize you? I knit you together in your mother's womb. The thing that Moses always thought was a liability, God is pointing out to him, I put that there for a reason. I, I made you that way for a reason. What, what Moses thought was his greatest liability actually, actually becomes an incredible strength. In fact, often your weaknesses become an asset for God to use in your leadership. Dan Allender has a great book called Leading with a Limp, if you've ever read this book. And the thesis of the book, he says, your leadership is capped by how honest you can be about your weaknesses. He goes on to say the true core strength is willing to feel helpless and disturbed, and it results in a self-disciplined and passionate life rather than a controlling life that fears what surprise may arise. See, what Moses understood, and what you'll see as he leads the people through the wilderness is Moses understands that his weaknesses are something that God is going to use as strength. So God not only knows that he has a stutter, he, he knows that he's not confident in his speaking, but God is going to use that very fact about him to bring about what God intends for the people of Israel. And when you step back from this for a minute, what God says there is, I will be with your mouth. I will be with your mouth when you decide to speak to the people. But you step back for a minute and you say, why not just fix it? Why not just fix it? Why? God could, in a moment at the burning bush, 
just fix Moses' mouth. That would be awesome. He could just make it to where he never stuttered again. But God doesn't seem concerned about that at all. God, God doesn't seem concerned at all to fix Moses' stutter, only to use Moses' stutter. Because to fix the stutter would mean that he doesn't need God anymore. right? To fix the stutter would basically be to give the picture of, I'm inadequate for the task, and God says, I'm going to make you adequate for the task, and Moses says, thanks, we'll talk later. But the way God does this is, Moses is now going to be dependent on the strength of God every time he opens his mouth. And God's like, that's exactly what I want. That's exactly why I made you that way. You know, this paradox is all over the Bible. The title of Allender's book is referring to Jacob, who wrestles with the Lord and then leaves with a limp, knowing that for the rest of his life, that's going to be a reminder of wrestling with God to get his blessing. You know, Paul has the same paradox in the New Testament. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul reveals that he's had these amazing revelations. He actually is a little bit ashamed to even say it quite as strongly as it is because if you remember, he says, I know this guy who had these visions of heaven. And then about five verses later, you realize he's the guy. This is him. He's talking about himself because he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. You know, this is Paul here, Paul the apostle, asking God three times, please take away this thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think we could infer here from Paul and from Jacob and from Moses and from Jesus and from so many of the other flawed people that God uses. That when Paul here says, I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I I think it would be easy to infer that sometimes the reason that we don't have the power of Christ and the work of God in our life is because we are too focused on our strengths and downplaying our weaknesses. See, what Paul says here is, you want to see God's strength made perfect in your life? You want to see it in large letters broadcast to the world? Chances are it's going to happen through your weakness, because that's where God is really strong. So God says, I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. I'm going to keep the stutter, because it's going to prove the power of God to everyone around you. So the first thing for us that we see from this question, who am I, it's pretty obvious. He's just like we are. He's weak. He's sinful. He's inadequate. He's pleading with God. He's kind of willing to do what God says, but needs a little assurance, and God gives him encouragement. And and what we take away is that Moses had a stutter, Jacob had a limp, Paul had a thorn. What do you have? 
What do you have that God might use? What is it about you and your weakness that God might make himself strong? God probably won't fix it, although sometimes he does, and he's certainly capable of doing it, but he's certainly going to use it. He's certainly going to use it. So the dialogue shifts here from Moses to God, right? So Moses says, who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? And and so God kind of deals with that. And then in 3.13, he says something kind of puzzling. So in 3.13, Moses says back, well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father sent me, they're going to ask me, what is his name? And what should I say to them? Well, this, if, you're, if you're kind of following along here, this is really kind of an odd thing to say from, from Moses' perspective. So if I go to the people of Israel and I say, hey, you remember God? Remember the God of Abraham? He said that we're, we're busting this joint. We're getting out of here. And they're like, well, what's his name? Like, what, what is going on? Is this like some kind of Rumpelstiltskin, weird, magical thing where you've got to know the name? But, but actually what's happening is these people feel abandoned by God. These people have been crying out to God for hundreds of years. They've been waiting for God to do something. And the reason they're asking this is because they're basically saying, who is he to us? Sure, he's the God of Abraham. We know the stories about what he did hundreds of years ago. We know what he did for Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, but who is he to us? Who is God for us? You know, it's in this context actually makes the name of God make sense in this passage. Because what God responds with is several different versions of his name. So in verse 13, Moses says, if they ask me, who is it, what should I say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This verse and the following verse where he says, the Lord and uh, the Lord God of your fathers is maybe the most commentated on verse in the entire Old Testament. So I'm just going to summarize it for you really quickly. He says, I am who I am. He says two versions of the verb to be with a relative pronoun in the middle, which is a really nonsensical way of saying anything. This is not something you would see anywhere else because it actually is very hard to describe what it actually means. But in the context of this question, it makes perfect sense. Who is God to us? What should we call God? What should our relationship be? What what is he living up to? What does his name say about him? Basically, his name means, I am the one who I am. He means, I will be who I will be. I will prove myself to you. It's, It's a roundabout way of saying, God will be God to you. Who should we say that God is? Watch and see. That's what this name means. He will prove himself to be God to you. He he will be faithful to his nature for you. He will be who he is always, now and forever, without a shadow of change. He will never, ever fail. He will never give up on his promises. He will never change his mind. He will be who he is for you always. Which means he's not just who we want him to be. See, this is kind of a differentiating thing that God is saying here. He is who he is regardless of anything else. In 
the 80s, there was a sociologist named Robert Bella who wrote a book called The Habits of the Heart. And in this book, they go around and they talk to all kinds of people about their belief in God. And they find out that one of the most common ways that people see God, they come to name Sheilaism. And it's because they talk to this lady named Sheila about what she believes in God. And here's what she says. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself, you know, I guess, take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. That's Sheilaism. It's extremely common. I just kind of do what I think God wants me to do and create God in my own image. It's just this little voice in my head. It's Sheilaism. Sheilaism. It's all of us. It's what we really just want God to be. Our uninformed projection of this would be nice if God were this. If God would do this, then I would really believe in him. You see this all the time in people who are doubting. Well, I can't believe in a God who this. That's Sheilaism. Because at the end of the day, God determines who God is. And he's revealed himself to us. And his word to Moses is, I am going to be the fullness of who I am as I reveal myself to you. You can trust that forever. But you cannot create God in your own image. So God says to them, I am who I am. I, I, I'll prove that to you. But there's a second thing. The word Yahweh is actually not in this verse. It's in the next one. And it's just an abbreviated version of this I am who I am. These are all versions of the verb to be. And Yahweh actually is the third person singular of this verb, which means he is who he is. That's what Yahweh means. He is who he is. He is the one who causes to be. He is the one who brings things into being. He is self-sustaining. Everything is dependent on him. He needs nothing, and everything needs him. That's what Yahweh means. He is the one who causes all things to be. But in revealing his name, He's doing something even deeper. Giving a name in the ancient world, especially a family name like this, is to give access to somebody, is to invite somebody into a level of intimacy with you. See, this is like, I, I struggled this week to figure out what the equivalent would be for us, like your direct line or your personal email or your cell phone number, like what, what is this? And I think maybe the easiest way to do it would be like, this is like giving your door code to somebody, right? Your super secret family door code, which is operable all the time. It's not that one you give that has 24-hour access while people are in town for the weekend. It's, it's the one that is the master code. Because what God is saying here is, you are welcome before me. You're, you're so welcome that you can come unannounced. I think what, what we're really getting here when God reveals this name is he's, he's almost saying something that we would say in human language as, I'm willing to be inconvenienced by you. I'm willing for you to call me into your situation. I'm willing for you to drop in unannounced. I'm willing for you to come into my life and make yourself at home. That's what it means for God to reveal his Name. So you have here what is true about God all through the Bible, this high and exalted and distant and glorious, I am who I am, I will never change, I am not dependent on you. But at the same time, this is my personal 
name. You can call me by it. You can be with me. You can come to me. You can come into my home and live with me, and I'll be your God, and you will be my people. So at the end of the dialogue, you get Moses getting this very specific mission. This is the third question. Not just who am I, not just who is God, but what should I do? What should I do? In verse 12 of chapter 3, God gives Moses a very specific mission that gets missed sometimes in the Exodus story, right? This is, this is the mission that God gives to Moses. He says, I will be with you, and this is the sign that I will give to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain, right? So we're back at Mount Horeb, right, which means wasteland. We're in the wasteland. This is not a remarkable mountain. Nobody would ever know about this mountain if it weren't for the Exodus story. There's nothing there that would be amazing to anyone except when they come back, we know this mountain as Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai. The mission that God gives to Moses is a go get them and come back mission. It's a two-part mission. I will prove myself faithful because you'll go get them and I'm not gonna leave you, I'm not gonna forsake you, you're gonna come right back here and you will worship me on this mountain, which we'll cover when we get there. But Moses' mission at center is all about worship. In fact, in the opening part of uh, this series on Exodus, I told you the whole book of Exodus is about worship. All the you know, plagues and the parting of the waters and the law and everything they encounter at Sinai, it's all about the presence of God and what to do in the presence of God, which is to worship him. The most important thing that Moses does is not divide the seas. It's not to get the Ten Commandments. It's to show the people how to worship God. God, in this encounter, gives Moses his entire life's mission. Whatever else happens, worship me. Here's the sign that I'll be faithful. You're going to worship me here in the future. Moses' lifetime actually can be summarized by three mountaintop experiences. This one, the wasteland, Sinai where he gets the law, and the last glimpse we ever get of Moses on Mount Nebo where God takes him up and he shows him the promised land and he says, you see all the promised land? That's where you're leading the people, but my plan for you is not for you to take them into the promised land. What is his plan? My plan is for you to worship me. See, we tend to think that maybe (coughs) Moses fails in his mission because his sin keeps him from going into the promised land. But actually, that's not really what God ever promises Moses to do. He promises he's gonna bring the people out. But then he promises, you're going to worship me on the mountain. And so Moses dies doing exactly what God had designed him to do, to worship God on the mountain. You know, the Jews think that maybe Moses didn't actually die, right? So you've got Elijah who didn't die, just brought up in the chariots of fire. You've got Enoch who didn't die, just was gone. And people are like, I think maybe something similar happened to Moses, Because we don't know what happened on that mountain. All we have is this eulogy that God must have written that he was with God on the mountain. And then he was no more. He fulfilled his purpose. He worshiped God. And he lived by his name. You know, Moses' name means drawn out of the water. Not only was Moses taken out of the water, his people were taken out of the water. 
And he was brought to worship God on the mountain. I'll close with this. This, this week we were in D.C. with this group of students, this OBU students. We're teaching a class in D.C. And we got to go on a monument tour. And I always love going on the monument tour of D.C. at night because it's just so beautiful. And it reminds you of all the things that um, God has done in our country and in our leaders. But the most powerful monument to me, at least, is the MLK monument. Especially we were here just a couple of days after MLK, after we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And um, when we're there, I love to tell the students this story that on April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was addressing the sanitation workers of Memphis, Tennessee. And here's what he said. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficulties ahead. But it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land, and I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It's the last speech that Martin Luther King Jr. would ever give because two days later he was assassinated. And we reflect on that thinking there was still so much work to be done. There was so much that he was doing almost to the extent that God would need him and God's purposes, but he'd been to the mountaintop. He'd worshiped. He fulfilled the exact role that I had for him. He, like Moses, had the central thing. He'd been to the mountain. He'd worshiped the Lord. He'd been faithful. And the question for us is, have you been to the mountaintop? Do you know that your worth in this life is not about what you do, but who you worship? Do you know that the sum of your life is not what you leave behind and your legacy and all those things? Your legacy is worshiping God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Like Moses, like Martin Luther King Jr., like all of us who have been named worshipers by God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this story of Moses' calling, that he is as inadequate as we are, and as flawed as we are, and as hesitant as we are, but he was put to use because he worshiped you. And so, Father, now as we begin to sing and worship, turn our hearts that we might worship you in everything. Father, give us hearts to serve you, to worship you, to trust you, to walk by faith. Lord, give us your spirit that turns our hearts to you each day, that we might live before you as Moses did. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and I've asked our new elders, kind of as their first act in our church, to come and serve us communion this morning. And in Exodus chapter 24, when the Israelites do get back to the mountain, they get back to Mount Sinai, God confirms his covenant with his people with a meal. And Moses and the elders and the leaders of Israel go up on the mountain and they eat at the table with the Lord. And this is how God always seals his covenants. Every covenant has a meal that's associated with it. And this morning, we share the meal of the new covenant. We, like the people of Israel, like the people in the, in the room with Jesus at the Last Supper, like all the people gathered together at the end of time, feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we come to the table of the Lord to eat, to reaffirm this covenant that his blood is sufficient for you 
that his death on the cross paid for your sins. And if you believe that this morning, come to the table of Jesus Christ.